This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. A guest speaker is featured on this message. Thanks for having me. I woke up really eager and really excited to worship with you all over the Word of God. So let's do that now. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13. This is a very familiar portion of Scripture. Um, Just two verses, but two spectacular verses. And I want to read the text. I'll pray for God's help right off the bat. And then we're going to dive in, and we are just going to ransack these verses for the truth and the glory and the hope and the strength and the encouragement that's here. Philippians 2 12 through 13, the Apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we love your word. Thank you for your word. We, we come this morning not uh, putting ourselves above your word to judge your word, but we put ourselves under your word. Your word is truth. So Jesus prayed for us, sanctify them in your By your word, because your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We say amen to that prayer by Jesus. Let truth hold sway now. And I'm just a feeble, fallible preacher. And so I just confess to you now, this sermon will have no effect, no benefit for these dear brothers and sisters at all. For the good of our souls, if you do not break in with spiritual power. So break in now with spiritual power, and grant your word success. Do it for our joy and for our good and for your eternal honor and glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my personal heroes, the great Welsh preacher from uh, the mid to late 20th century, wrote this about our text. He said, It is perhaps one of the most perfect summaries of the Christian life to be found anywhere. Here is one of the most pregnant statements which even Paul himself ever made. And that, that's impressive because Paul wrote some pregnant statements in his letters. This text is all about the Christian life. It's all about living a life of obedience to God. It's a text about growth in godliness. It's a text about putting off the old self and putting on the new self in Christ. It's a text about killing sin and living by the Spirit. In other words, it's a text about the process that we call sanctification, which is just a $12 theological word for the process of becoming more godly more holy, more like our obedient Savior, Jesus. And we know it to be a process, don't we? It is a lifelong 
process. And sometimes the process has a lot of forward momentum. Sometimes not so much, but always moving forward. Sometimes just leaning forward. When God saved us in the moment that he granted us the grace to bank our hope on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and for the fulfillment of all his promises, in that moment, God did not bend down and kiss the frog. And immediately transformed the frog into a handsome prince or a beautiful princess. What he did do was he made a declaration over the frog. He said about us, we frogs. I'm just, I'm just feeling the weight of calling people that I don't know frogs. But I guess, I guess it's a step above scurvy worms, which I could call us too. But... Frogs. We're just frogs. But he said this about we frogs the moment we believed. Based on the righteous life of my son and based on his obedient and sacrificial death and based on his victorious resurrection and based on his glorious ascension, I hereby declare this frog to be holy and blameless and above reproach in my sight. That's Colossians 1.22. God goes on and says, I will no longer look at that frog without looking at my son. And what I see in my son, I will count as belonging to that frog. That, brothers and sisters, you know well, is the glorious doctrine of justification. Another $12 theological word for God's legal declaration that we are in his sight holy frogs though we be. And it was at that moment of justification that God began the process in us called sanctification. The process of turning us from a frog into a prince or princess. Sanctification is the process whereby we become what God has already declared us to be, holy. Or, put like the Apostle Paul does in our text, sanctification is the process whereby we work out our salvation. That's what this text is all about. And I believe God intends for it to bring clarity and to bring hope and to bring help and to bring encouragement to us as we live the Christian life. Now, that word therefore at the beginning of our verses burns off the page. At least it should burn off the page for us. And it's got to be dealt with before we move on to the heart of our text because that word ties our text into what comes before it. And it reminds us that our text this morning has a context. And remembering the context is key to understanding and applying these verses. There is a wider context to our verses. Therefore, that word reaches all the way back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Here it is. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That phrase is the heading, it's the banner over everything Paul says from chapter 1, verse 27, 
all the way to chapter 2, verse 18. So it's the heading over our verses too. There is a manner of life that shows the worth and the power of the gospel. And if we, if we turn that into a question, how do we live so as to show the worth and power of the gospel? The answer from our text is, well, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, recognizing that God is at work within us. So that's the wider context. And then there's the immediate context, which is also about the gospel. And you know Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I'm not going to read it, but you, you know it. It is just a mountain range of the glories of Christ who took on human nature, becoming a slave, being obedient, even obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and so is exalted as the Lord over all and will one day be worshipped by all creation. So that's, that's the wider and the immediate context. And of course, the context for our text is the gospel. It's only because of the gospel that we can hope to work out our salvation in sin-slain obedience. It's Christ's life, death, and resurrection that sets us free from sin so that now we're free to stop sinning and obey God, to become progressively more like him, to live in harmony with his worth and excellence. It's Christ's cross and Christ's resurrection that grants freedom from the penalty of sin and freedom from the power of sin. Freedom to begin to obey. It's at the cross of Christ that God cancels our sin so that we can conquer our sins by the Holy Spirit. When the cross canceled the condemning power of our sin... It did not make working out of salvation, our striving to be holy as he is holy, unnecessary. It made it possible. And in the end, successful. So that's the context. That's what the word therefore refers to. So, introduction over. Let's dive into the heart of the text now. And we're going to do it under two headings, two very obvious headings. Headings. Here they are. Our work, that's the second half of verse 12, and God's work, verse 13. So our work, God's work. First, our work. Verse 12 again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let me... I'm going to make a point clear here right at the beginning. Work out your salvation in the original Greek means work out your salvation. It's exactly what it means. And the word that gets translated work out means produce it. Bring it about or affect it. Think about that. Produce Your own salvation with fear and trembling. That language is almost dangerous. The Bible can be a dangerous book if it's not handled with care. We're on a tightrope here 
And so we have to keep our balance. Work out the salvation that you receive by grace. We're back on balance. Put your salvation on display in a way that honors Christ, in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And the way this verse is written makes it clear that takes labor. It takes continuous, sustained effort, which is what the word translated work means. Continuous, sustained effort. The emphasis here is clearly on our responsibility. We are not passive in the process of sanctification, which is exactly why the Apostle Paul begins here, I believe. I mean, this could have been a much more comfortable text if Paul would have began with God's work in verse 13. But he didn't do that because he's not interested in our comfort. He wants us to know holiness does not happen apart from our effort. Our effort to obey. That's what working out is. I mean, look at the text. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, you'd expect Paul to say, obey. But he doesn't say obey. He says, work out your own salvation. And he says it that way because he wants to make it clear that our active obedience is essential to finally being saved. That's how we work out our salvation. We act out our deliverance from sin, which is ours in Christ. We act out our victory over sin, which is ours in Christ. We strive for the holiness without which we will not see the Lord, Hebrews 12.4. There is a measure of holiness required not to justify us, not for the declaration, not to get that legal declaration from God, but to give evidence that we have indeed been justified. And it's absolutely essential. Without the evidence, we are lost. Obedience is possible and obedience is absolutely necessary. Now, I say this in in no uncertain terms because the false teaching that we should not expect Christians to change is out there. And it's, it's seeping into the wider church. In fact, it's, it has seeped into mine on occasion. I've had people leave my church because according to them, I preach the law and not the gospel. Because when I come to commands in the Bible, I urge the people in my church to obey them because I don't want them to die and go to hell. I want them to work out their salvation. But some would say that urging Christians to obey the Bible's commands is just, it's graceless legalism. Only the Apostle Paul didn't think so. And so I don't think so. But there are people out there who think so. One author comes to Philippians 2, 12 and 13, our text, and writes this. Sanctification 
is the daily hard work. So there's the work. Here's the work of sanctification. It's the daily hard work of going back to the reality of our justification. Our work means coming to a greater understanding of Jesus' work. So what he means is, and another author says it like this, sanctification is merely the art of getting used to our justification, our being declared righteous. Now, that is reductionistic. And it doesn't deal carefully with the whole counsel of God or even just the text that we're looking at this morning. And it, and it, it can lead to what's been called celebratory failureism. So celebrating our failures. Most of us have heard people say something like this. I am a wretched sinner. But praise God. Jesus came to save wretched sinners like me. I am such a wretch that I cannot faithfully obey God's commands for one moment, let alone one full day. Everything I do, even the apparently good things are shot through with sin and ruined. I can't love God with all my heart and my neighbor is myself. My heart is black with sin and I am unfaithful to my faithful Savior. But God has saved me by the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's forgiven me and wiped the guilt of my sin away. He's declared me holy based on the righteous life of Jesus. I'm his adopted child. And even though I continue to sin, I cannot disappoint my heavenly father. Because when he looks at me, all he sees is the righteousness of his son. Praise God. What a gospel. Now, most of that is absolutely true. And it is unspeakably precious and beautiful. When we hear a paragraph like that, or read a paragraph in a book or a blog, I mean, we just instinctively praise God for his glorious gospel grace. The trouble is, those are the words of someone who has lost their balance. It's not entirely true. It's not a careful statement of the power of the gospel. And we know why, don't we? Because obedience is possible. Holiness is attainable. Killing sin is doable. The Bible says so over and over and over again. I mean, it sounds humble to say, I can't do it, I'm too big of a sinner. But that's not humble. That's harmful. Because it's not true. And it denigrates the amazing grace of God that it hopes to celebrate. The grace that not only justifies through faith, but also gives us the power of Christ to live new lives. Have you heard people say, I'm gospel-centered. I'm not into all that talk about killing sin and obeying the law. Well, that, that's a false dichotomy. I'm gospel-centered too. And I want a gospel 
that not only frees me from the penalty of sin, but also frees us from the power of sin. I want that gospel smack dab in the middle of every sermon I preach. And I want that gospel smack dab in the middle of my life because the gospel is power for change. The gospel is power for obedience. It it is an impotent gospel that leads people to say, All our attempts to obey fail, thereby making us recipients of greater grace. Wrong. It's wrong. God does not exhort us to work out our salvation, to obey, in order to teach us that we cannot hope to obey. I didn't establish the rules of our household and pass them along to my children and say, here are the rules of the household. Now, I know you cannot obey one of these. So when you don't obey, just come and tell me about it and we'll talk. We can obey. We can obey. That's the hope. That's the power of gospel grace. And we need that hope. We need that help because the world and the devil press in on us every single day to succumb to the remaining sin in our own hearts. We need to know that there is gospel grace to walk in God's ways, to work out our salvation. The Christian life is not merely fail, repent, repeat. Fail, repent, repeat. Repeat, fail, repent, repeat. I've been stuck in that rut. Maybe you have too. And if so, you know it is devastating. That rut devastates people. It devastates relationships. It devastates marriages. It devastates families. It devastates churches. The Bible tells us, God tells us, this is my way. Now walk in it and I'll give you all the grace you need to walk in it. Sanctification is more than you will fail, but there's grace for you. Sanctification is about failing less than we used to as we learn to obey in motive and deed, just like Christ our brother obeyed. It's about more and more taking on the family resemblance and being holy as our Father in heaven is holy. I think one of the reasons that we can get hung up here is because we can slip into equating obedience with perfection. So if I'm going to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, then I'm never going to lose my temper. I'm never going to lust. I'll never be lazy. I'll never give in to self-pity. I'll never succumb to the fear of man. I'll never do a good thing with mixed motives. I'll never lack joy in Jesus. How many of us can say that? I, I do not ever go to bed thinking, well, I've been kind enough today. I've been loving enough today. I've been gracious enough. I've been faithful enough today. Do you? So here's the danger. Rather than dealing with the weight of the expectation of perfection, we chuck the emphasis on obedience altogether. But listen, it's not true that the call to obedience, to work out our salvation, is a call to perfection. That's not true. If God only accepted our perfect obedience, where would we be? 
And here's the good news. By his grace, God accepts our imperfect obedience through Christ. We will always be imperfect in this life. God knows that. I mean, think about it. God sovereignly designed sanctification to be a process. And we could preach a sermon about why that's so. I mean, he could have just kissed the frog. But he began the process by justifying us. He's already declared us perfect because of Christ's perfection. And now we are in the process of becoming perfect. God still gives commands in the new covenant. And now we obey them, not not hoping to prove ourselves and earn some status before God, but we obey them hoping to live out all we are in Christ. And when we do obey, listen, God is pleased. That's amazing. And we need to hear it, don't we? I need to hear it over and over again. My father is pleased. God is pleased with my imperfect obedience because when I'm obeying, I'm bringing my life more and more in harmony with his worth and excellence. When we work out our salvation, when we trust and obey, our heavenly father is pleased with us. It's all over the Bible. When we do good, When we do good works, when we grow in our knowledge of God, he's pleased, Colossians 1. When we present our bodies as living sacrifices of worship, God accepts it and is pleased, Romans 12. When we look out for the weaker brother, God is pleased, Romans 14. When children obey their parents, it pleases the Lord, Colossians 3. When we're faithful to speak the gospel, it pleases God, 1 Thessalonians 2. When we share with others and make sacrifices for our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's pleasing to God, Hebrews 13. When we keep God's commandments, we please him, 1 John 3.22. Whenever we trust and obey, God is pleased. Obedience is possible and obedience is necessary. And God is pleased to accept our imperfect obedience. That's the power of gospel grace. It's the power for gospel growth. It's the power to work out our own salvation. And we're called to work out our salvation with a particular attitude. The end of verse 12 says that we're to do it with fear and trembling. Now that phrase points us to our next heading, to God's work, to verse 13. Because the reason we're to do it with fear and trembling, listen, not afraid that we're not going to do it right and that we're going to somehow mess up and lose God's favor. Not that kind of fear, but with reverential awe. That kind of fear. We're to work out our own salvation with reverential awe because God Almighty, think about this, The creator and sustainer of the universe created it with the word, sustains it with the word. Our redeemer, our justifier, our father is so close to us that he's working in us. 
Let that fill you with awe and reverence that makes you tremble. God is working in us. Verse 13 again. For, praise God that doesn't say so that. For, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, that call to work, work out, and the call to strive, Hebrews 12, to train, 1 Timothy 4, to make every effort, 2 Peter 1, to put to death, Colossians 3, to put off and put on, Ephesians 4, to fight, 1 Timothy 6, to run, Hebrews 12, to press on, Philippians 3, to toil and struggle, Colossians 1, that would be overwhelming, except for that little word for at the beginning of verse 13. The entire Christian life hangs on that one little word. We work for or because God is already at work in us. Hallelujah! I mean, that means verse 12 is not an appeal to self-sufficiency. It means our growth in holiness is not self-generated. We are not left alone to work out our salvation. This clarifies how we grow. Our effort is necessary, but only God's power makes our effort possible. We work out because God works in. I mean, we don't sit idly by and wait for the urge to obey and to do good works and to kill sin. No! We get up and we do it with the confidence that what's causing us to do it is God. I mean, this is a stunning announcement. This is a happy announcement. It is an encouraging and hopeful and assuring announcement. You need it. I need it. God is at work in you, and God is at work in me, and God is at work in every Christian. And this verse is the accent and emphasis of our text. This verse, God's work, is the cause of our work, which is the effect. God's work is the cause of our work. He's the infinite worker. And when our finite work is empowered by God's work, our work becomes an expression of his work, which is why he accepts our faith and obedience and why it pleases him. Because it's ultimately an expression of his work in us. And God's work in us is comprehensive. For God is it, it is God who works in you both to will and to work. In other words, not only does God empower the working, but He empowers the willing behind the working as well. That's why I entitled this sermon The Empowered Will to Obey. The desire to obey and please God, the will to do it, and the actual doing of it is all because of God. If we have any inclination at all in our heart to please God and run this race of the Christian life, we can be encouraged. God put that in our heart. 
Are you tempted to despair in your battle to put remaining sin to death? Are you weary in your attempts to obey? Are you confused about how growth in holiness happens? Well, here's the answer. This is the answer that will turn despair to joy, weariness to strength, and confusion to clarity. God is at work in us both to will and to work. God is at work. God is at work in you and he's always working in you. It's not always obvious that God is working. Sometimes you can't even tell. Sometimes you wonder if anything is happening at all. Well, here's what we now know to be true. No matter how you feel, God is always at work in the lives of his children. Always. And he does it for his good pleasure. He will be a happy God. So Philippians 1.6 is true, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God started it, God will complete it, and God will keep on working in us in the meantime so we can go forward. We can press on. We can work out our salvation trusting that God is always at work in us. Now, let me encourage you as we begin to draw to a close here to let these two verses stand together. We have to keep these two verses in tension. If we keep them in tension, we'll be able to stay on the tightrope. But when a tightrope loses its tension, it droops. And if it droops, you fall off. And you're going to fall off on one side or the other. This is God's sovereignty and human responsibility side by side in perfect tension. Keep them there. Keep them together. They are together all over the Bible. Let me show you just a couple places. I'm just going to read text to you. Listen carefully for the tension. 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul worked hard. He killed the sin of laziness. He made every effort in ministry, but the decisive power to kill the sin and work hard came from the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 8, 16 and 17. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he, Titus, not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. God gives zeal to Titus. That is, he works in him the willing. And then Titus acts in his earnestness of his own accord. He works out his salvation. And you know what? The Apostle Paul does not see a contradiction here. 
There is no contradiction. There's no contradiction between God working the will to do a thing and Titus working it as his will. It is his will. God doesn't contradict the will. God transforms the will. Romans 8.13. We went to this text, I think, in every message over the men's retreat. Here it is again, guys. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I mean, we we are commanded here to put sin to death. In other words, we should not wait for God to kill our sin while we just remain passive. We kill the sin, yet we're to kill it by the Spirit. It's ultimately by God's Spirit that sin is slain. But we do the slaying. Here's another one. 1 Peter 4.11 Whoever speaks, we do the speaking. As one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves, we do the serving. As one who serves in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God is the strength behind all our speaking and all our serving. But we do the speaking and we do the serving. One more. Colossians 1.29. For this I toil struggling. So Paul is the one toiling and struggling. How? With all God's energy that he powerfully works within me. Side by side in perfect tension. One time, Charles Spurgeon, the great London preacher of the 19th century, was approached by someone who asked this question. How do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? To which Spurgeon replied, I do not try to reconcile friends. Verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 2 are friends. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. God produces We perform. God's work in our sanctification does not limit or nullify our work in sanctification. It creates it. John Piper has given us all kinds of great terms and phrases and sentences and paragraphs and books. But one of my absolute favorites is his description of the process of sanctification. And it's really a paraphrase of our text. Here it is. Act the miracle. Act the miracle. I mean, three words and the guy nails it. Act the miracle. That's Philippians 2, 12 and 13 in three words. That's the process of sanctification in three words. Acting the miracle is not the same as working a miracle. When Jesus tells the man with the withered hand to stretch out his hand, he's working a miracle. When that man stretches out his hand, he's acting the miracle. When it comes to working out our salvation, we don't wait passively for the miracle of killing sin or the miracle of pressing on or the miracle of obeying or the miracle of striving to be worked on us. We act the miracle that's already taking place inside of us. 
The process of sanctification, of becoming holy, is a divine miracle in us. And we act the miracle as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. God authors the miracle of sanctification. We act the miracle of sanctification. So, take heart, weary sin killer. Weary obeyer. Weary runner, weary fighter, weary worker. God is not a passive spectator cheering you on from the sidelines. God is at work in you right now, working for his good pleasure, shaping your will and your desires so that you do what he's called you to do. Take heart. Whenever, whatever God calls you to do, he will provide all the power necessary to do it. So, when you find yourself obeying, thank God. When you love the unlovely, thank God. When you choose what's right, thank God. When you show mercy to the weak, thank God. When you give generously to God's kingdom work, thank God. When you get up early in the morning and read your Bible and pray, thank God. When you feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the prisoner and take in the stranger, thank God. When you turn the other cheek, thank God. When you share the gospel with your neighbor, thank God. When you turn away from pornography, thank God. When you forgive and bless instead of curse, thank God. We act the miracle. We work out our salvation for it is God who works in us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.